most of these tactics I talk about, techniques, are operating on an unconscious level, below the threshold of consciousness, where, in fact, is where most creativity actually is happening, right? Yes, we need a certain amount of deliberate creativity at the end of the day to physically do things and bring things to market or a book to fruition and so forth, but a lot of that idea churn is happening below the surface. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Donald Ratner, author of My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation, 48 Science-Based Techniques. Donald is the founder and principal of Donald M. Ratner Architect, an award-winning consultancy advising designers and users in the development of creative space for workplace, residential wellness, hospitality, and retail environments. His work has been featured on CNN and in the New York Times, Town & Country, House & Garden, Rob Report, Residential Architect, Builder, Traditional Building Magazine, L Magazine, and Design Milk. Donald holds a bachelor's degree in art history from Columbia and a master's of architecture from Princeton. I was interested to talk to Donald because creativity is a subject that really interests me personally. I think we're all creative, although we don't all think of ourselves as creative. And I love the definition that Donald shares of creativity in this conversation and the way he's organized this book to be a series of things we can do to help shape our spaces and places, our homes and our offices, the places where we work and spend time to help us generate more and better ideas, to be more productive, to enjoy the process, and ultimately to complete projects that will make a difference for others. So this book is beautiful, has a lot of great photographs, it's got a lot of great ideas, things, some of which you've probably already applied others that you could apply relatively easily. Some might take a little more effort, but I think the book is worth checking out. I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you want to learn more about Donald and his work, you can visit donaldratner.com. That's R-A-T-T-N-E-R. Or check out his book, My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation, 48 Science-Based Techniques. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Donald Ratner. Donald, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you for brilliant. Uh, looking forward to our conversation. Yes, me too. Donald, will you tell me, please, what's life about? Well, just promise me this, that the questions will get easier after this one, because <laughs> that's really hard. I'm sort of tempted to say, just plain old, I don't know. But, you know, I realize that in this context, that's probably the last thing you want to hear. So maybe, you know, what I'll do is go in kind of the opposite direction, which is to say life is about many things, many things to an individual, many things to different people. And it's very difficult, I think, for me at least, just speaking for myself, to kind of bring it down to a single statement or concept. 
So maybe, you know, I could pick out of many possible answers and just frame it in terms of perhaps one goal to think about, which is to think about life as an attempt to achieve freedom from want. And I think of want both in the material sense, but also in the emotional, psychological sense as well. Because if you could achieve that, I think one would find oneself in a kind of state of equilibrium, of stasis, of balance, because there's no more desire in a way, and I'm, and I'm putting that in a good sense. So perhaps that's one thing we can think about in terms of, okay, what are we looking to get out of our lives? Yeah, I love that. I, you know, I've asked about a hundred people that <laughs> on this show, probably hundreds and hundreds more in my life, but I've never had anybody answer the question quite that way. And I love that. And to me, I'm hearing kind of a Buddhist undertone in that, the freedom from want, which I'm really intrigued by the paradox that that response contains, right? Wanting, freedom from wanting, but- Wanting, where, right. how, Yeah, how, I'll just stay with this for a moment and then, and then I do think the questions will get easier, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. But <laughs> tell me, what's informed this worldview? I just find, you know, from kind of personal experience and thinking about things that, you know, the sense that we're always kind of striving for some kind of success, something that's elusive, that we're chasing, it just creates a kind of a stress, you know? It's just this kind of chronic feeling like you're missing something, and that's a negative emotion, obviously. It has an impact on our mental health, our physical health. And it just sort of dawns on me that if we can kind of get out of that cycle through positive ends, that we just will feel a whole lot better with ourselves. Yeah, no doubt. And one of the things that I love about your work is that you have thought very deeply about not just how we feel, but how the spaces we inhabit shape how we feel, right? And you've written this book, My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Simulate Ideas and Spark Innovation, 48 Science-Based Techniques. Why did you write this book? Who did you write it for and what did you want it to do for them? So I guess I wrote the book because, first of all, I felt obviously like I had something to say, but in a sense, I was trying to take material that is out there in the world, that it exists, but it's very fragmented. It's very scattered about. A lot of it comes from, you know, I would call them obscure, but they're academic journals that really scientists read and talk about with each other, but they don't necessarily get to engage with the larger world, with the public. A few pieces, you know, every now and then we'll seep into the popular press and we'll read about these kind of things, but it's here and it's there. And I felt like, wow, when you pull it all together, you get something clearly that's greater than the sum of its parts, because it really does all mesh in a way that makes for a coherent narrative. Now, who I was writing it for, I had several challenges in shaping this book, and that was definitely one of them, because I wasn't talking to just one audience, at least I didn't want to, or I didn't feel like I was aiming for that. So first of all, you know, there are people obviously who, you know, we, I would number among my colleagues, design professionals, architects, interior designers, or even people who are very passionate about shaping their home environments or even workspace environments. So there's that group, clearly. There are also kind of the traditional creative people, and by traditional, I mean the association of creativity with the arts, with design because that definition was operative, say, from the late Renaissance up to the late 19th century, where creativity and the arts kind of were linked very tightly. But then in the, around the turn of the 20th century, creativity, the concept is expanded to include things that we would not consider to fall within the arts. And it really becomes about 
developing novel and useful ideas for products and services and systems. And you can see in that definition, which I just gave you, which is called the consensus definition of creativity, there's no reference to the arts per se. So now we're talking about anybody from people in so-called creative fields, marketing, advertising, publishing, even finance in a sense. Certainly the sciences could be included in this broader category of creativity. And then finally, there are people who are just interested in, obviously, self-improvement, psychology, some of these fields as well. So I had these different groups and I found, you know, I needed to walk a kind of tight rope to find a style, a language, a tone in the book that would appeal to all of them. And then there was a kind of accompanying challenge with that, which is, okay, so where would you shelve this book if you were running a bookstore or a library? And, you know, this is the analog world where you only get basically one shot, right? Your book is only going to go on one place on the shelf in the library or the bookstore. So where would you put it? There I found that people tended to put it into architecture, interior design, home design, house and garden, which is all fine, but it makes it challenging to appeal to some of these other groups which don't necessarily fall in there. And then the third challenge I found for me, at least, just to kind of put them all together in this response was, you know, what's the narrative structure? Because on the one hand, I'm trying to show people how to apply these findings in a very practical, tangible way. So there is the, what I would call manual aspect of the book. And that's where I think the numbering of the techniques, I literally one through 48, organizing them under certain overarching categories, kind of made a lot of sense. But on the other hand, I'm also trying to tell a story. That is to have a narrative, a beginning, middle, and an end. And so juggling those two genres somehow, again, just for me, kind of posed a challenge. So at the end of the day, clearly I'm writing the book to help people, to give them insight into how they can shape their physical surroundings and also certain things they can do within those surroundings that, according to science at least, has been shown to enhance creative performance, to boost creative output. Yeah. Thank you for that. And it became evident from the cover (laughs) where it says 48 science-based techniques and then throughout the book where you cite the studies and you reiterate that, you know, there is research to substantiate these ideas it became very evident to me very early that that was important to you. Why? Why was it important to you to back that up with hard science and not just say, hey, here's what people say, or here's what worked in my experience? Well, you know, part of it is coming from within, which is that I just feel more comfortable when I have a kind of grounding to what I'm putting forth out there because I want to be able to tell the truth as best I can. Clearly, I want to feel like this is not just my sort of gut feeling but that there is some kind of, call it consensus, or ideas backing up these premises. Now, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to oversell science in a sense as being, you know, the end-all and cure-all. Scientists make mistakes, theories are put out and then discarded X years later because of different findings, but it forms, I think, a solid foundation for building on, so to speak. And, you know, it's not even to also rule out empirical evidence or personal experience, but I think one has to be very clear in advancing those ideas that this is coming from me, this is my experience. And there's a fair bit of that in the book. I am drawing from famous creatives, eminent creatives, and talking about what they did. So you can extrapolate from what works for certain people to maybe broader concepts. But I think having that scientific background just to me put it in a place where people would feel confident that the material I'm putting out has some grounding and is not just pure opinion and may or may not work. And I should also mention, by the way, with scientific investigation, 
So, you know, typical experiments and studies might involve 50 people, 100 people, 500 people sometimes. So what scientists are looking for is a kind of average archetypal data point, right? So that means it's going to apply to the largest number of people, generally speaking. But when it comes to you or me or the person sitting next to us, you may find that it's completely the opposite. There are people who can screen out noise in a way that the larger population cannot. There are people who don't react to color in the same way that you or I might react. So I want to put everything out there with the idea that you might test some of these things. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, you know, move on to something else or do the inverse or whatever. Classic example, of course, of that is your chronotype, right? There are the morning larks and there are the night owls. We know that people are more comfortable or more productive or more creative at different times of day. So it's hard to say this is the you know truth for you. Whereas if we look at the larger population, well, the evidence suggests this. You know, you work with it. It's a dialogue, not just a kind of fiat approach. Yeah. Now, I've never heard of that term, by the way, chronotype. But I'm definitely, you know, familiar with the morning, you know, the early birds and the night owls, for sure. I want to go back to something that you just shared in the answer to the previous question, which was the definition, or I think you called it the consensus definition of creativity. And again, I'd never heard that either, but I thought that was really interesting and potentially useful. And I want to explore what might follow from that a little further. So would you be willing to kind of carve that out and explain that in its own, like, what is the definition of creativity you used for this book or how do you think of or define creativity? Sure. So, you know, that is obviously uh, the $64,000 question. And, you know, first of all, I should say that the word creativity has a long history and that the meanings do change over the millennia. It's not a constant. But at this time, and I should say that there's a very extensive kind of academic network of people who study creativity for a living on an academic level. That's what they do. Which is a pretty new phenomenon, right? Relatively speaking. Yes, absolutely. And we can talk certainly about its history. So this consensus definition, just as it sounds like, is what the sort of academic community presently feels is correct, is appropriate. So let me just say it again. So creativity is the development of novel and useful ideas for products, services, and systems. So let's parse that out a little bit. I think the first two key words there are novel and useful. So by novel, of course, we mean new, original, unique, surprising, all the terms that we would commonly associate with it. Uh, useful, yes, in a pragmatic sense, but I think more broadly in the sense of something that has value to someone. So a, a good example of that would be a work of art. It has no practical utility in the strict sense of the term, but it obviously holds great value to us financially, spiritually, emotionally, because of what it brings to us psychologically and so forth. So that's key to understanding that term useful. As for products, services, and systems, I think they're fairly explanatory. Products, an end product can be physical, but it can also be a scientific formula like E equals MC square, in a sense, is a work product. A service, obviously, now you're talking about things that are more in a service industry type, whether it's how to figure out the best way to make hotel guests feel comfortable upon arriving in the hotel, things of that nature. And by systems, you know, we're talking about something like systems of governance, right? What's the best way to govern people? Well, there's the democratic system and there's the autocratic system and so on and so forth. So those tend to be the kind of criteria through which we're exercising our creativity. And I should also mention that this definition 
is by and large a kind of, I'll call it Western approach to creativity, Eastern philosophy or Eastern understandings, traditionally speaking, are not necessarily the same. They don't quite put the same emphasis on the end product, right? In the West, we tend to think of, okay, what's the outcome? What's coming out of this creative act? Whereas in Eastern philosophy, to the extent that I've you know looked into it, is more about inner development, spiritual development, the self, rather than what kind of tangible outcome can I point to in this process. But you know that obviously my context is more in the consensus definition that we just talked about. Thank you for breaking that down or expanding that. I think that's not only interesting, but like a typical Westerner, <laughs> I think it's pretty useful. Right. And to go back to, again, something we touched on earlier already in this conversation, you point out in the book, and I thought this was really insightful about how for thousands and thousands of years, we as humans have been intentionally designing spaces to evoke certain emotions or certain responses. Right. Will you talk a little bit about some of the examples that people could relate to in how we've been doing that throughout our civilizations? Well, sure. I mean, if you think about, you know, the great religious sites, you could go back to pagan temples. If you've ever had the privilege of traveling, you say, into Greece and gone to see some of these great temples that are perched up on, you know, mountain sites overlooking remarkable landscapes below, you realize there is just a sense of awe and monumentality and a kind of connection to nature at its most, you know, el literally elevated sort of spiritual sense. Another good Example of medieval cathedrals, you know, the great Gothic cathedrals of Europe, where you go in and there's literally a, it's a 150 feet high ceiling. And there are even parts in the book where I talk about the research and the effects of high ceiling, which is, you know, generally to move us into a kind of abstract state of mind. One of the constituent characteristics of the creative mind is that you look at things non-specifically, abstractly, broad brush, big picture, you know, far away from detail. Because think about it, if you were sitting down to invent a product or a service, you're not going to be focusing first on the details. You're going to be looking at the big picture of things and kind of honing in on details. So I think, you know, intuitively, quote unquote, pre-scientifically, the people who shape those places, the cathedrals, the temples, and so forth, clearly understood the emotional reaction that their creations would evoke in the observer, but they didn't have the scientific, you know, insights that we have now as to maybe why some of these things operate the way they do, but they could grasp them for sure. But now we have a more conscious knowledge of what these inputs do to us and why they do it to us. So the idea would be that we can then turn around and leverage those insights by consciously applying them to our physical environment to evoke the desired responses. That makes so much sense to me. And in addition to what you've talked about, you know, the ancient structures of Greece or these Gothic cathedrals that palaces like Versailles that conveyed a sense of power or maybe Zen gardens with a sense of serenity. It's like, okay, we see that, but we don't necessarily think, I think many of us don't necessarily think, oh, I can create an atmosphere that will evoke creativity in my own home or in my own office. And I think that insight combined with that creativity is not just a thing, maybe product managers or designers of customer experience, you know, or many people, scientists, marketers, teachers, I mean, and so many that we can really help ourselves, not only in the experience, but in the results we create, if we just give a little thought and effort to the space, right, where we, where we work. So let me ask you about that. First, I want to start because you do list and anybody 
can pick up this book and jump right in, flip to a page or read it through. I know you encourage people to read it in a linear fashion first, which is what I did, but people could get value instantly by flipping to any page, I think. But before we talk about any of those specific techniques, let me ask you instead, what do most people get wrong when it comes to creativity or what do most people not understand? Well, a couple of things I would say. One is that creativity is a kind of constant for them. That is, you know, okay, I'm such and such a creative person, or I'm a very creative person, or I'm not a creative person. And it's almost like that's a static quality. They see it as a static quality. Whereas kind of one of the big, I hope, underlying points of the book is, no, actually, creativity can fluctuate quite a bit. And I think we all understand that on some level, if we're tired or hungry or in a bad mood, we do sense that, okay, maybe I wasn't at my peak. But one of the things we don't think about so much is our relationship to our physical surroundings. But when you think about it, it's almost remarkable that that isn't more of a part of our thinking in terms of, okay, how am I going to kind of optimize my performance consistently? And a lot of the book, it talks about evolution and the effects of evolution on how we think and act today, which is to say, you know what? A large part of ourselves was kind of conceived, shaped, and given form over hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. And that whole struggle, in a sense, could be boiled down to how do I adapt to my environment? How do I deal with my immediate surroundings? Because you know what? Back in the day, roaming the African savannah, there were no mediating influences like walls, floors, ceilings, roofs, air conditioning, supermarkets to get food. It was just you and the environment. There was nothing between you. So our whole ability to survive is predicated on the idea that we can work with our environment, master it to some degree, or certainly find an equilibrium to it, and that vice versa, it's going to have a great effect on us. There's a wonderful quote I put at the beginning of the book from Winston Churchill, which I think really touches on this, which is, quote, we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us, unquote. So there is that idea that, you know what, this is a two-way street. It's a reciprocal effect on how our environment can impact us as much as we are, of course, the shapers of certainly the built world and so forth. And I think when people become more attuned to that fact, the idea that we are where we are becomes very kind of powerful in a sense, and that our surroundings influence in ways that that science has begun to uncover, a lot of which is counterintuitive. We just wouldn't necessarily expect that. So. You know, from a creative standpoint, it's be very attuned to your environment. It's going to have an impact on how you think, what style of cognitive processing you're engaged in at any time, how well you do it, rather than this is what I am for the time being and I'm just the best I can do and leave it at that. Yeah. The very fixed mindset kind of thing that people, yeah. Maybe it's the coach in me, but whenever I hear someone say, I am not, and I can sense for them, it's a limiting belief. I'm not a good public speaker, right? I'm not a creative person. I hate that. <laughs> right. I'm with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about a few of these. You use a word, a term in the book I'd never heard before again as well. And maybe it's a place to start on this. The term is creativity tactic. Will you talk about what you mean by a creativity tactic? And do you consider each of the 48 one of those or is that something different? Yes, I do use the word tactic to describe what you could also term technique. So the idea is that these are strategies that you can implement in your physical space 
to optimize your ability to generate novel and useful ideas. By no means do you have to do all 48. They have found that just one change of condition and environment can wholly alter the outcome, not only in terms of creativity, but I should also mention health and happiness. That is, creativity, health, and happiness tend to fall on the same spectrum with respect to the surrounding environment, meaning that whatever cues or triggers or inputs in your environment improve creativity tend to boost the other two as well, and in the reverse direction, whichever tend to diminish or suppress one tends to do the other as well. So I call them tactics because I, I like the idea that they're sort of associated with deliberate strategy a means to achieve a certain an end. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. That's interesting how you talk about creativity, health, and happiness. It's like they rise and fall together, you see, right? And you talk about affect, striving for positive affect. What do you mean by that and why does it matter? So affect is a term that scientists and academics like to use more or less as a synonym for emotion and perhaps mood is another one. So broadly speaking, whatever in our physical environment or even in our lives in general cause what I'll use more scientific terms here or terminology, mood arousal, which you and I would call getting in a good mood, being happy, being content or pleased or satisfied, tends to boost creativity. And you know, when you think about it, it makes a certain amount of sense. Nature has wired us in a way to want to be more creative, to exercise our creativity, because it rewards us with a sense of pleasure. And generally speaking, whatever nature wants us to do more of, it will give us these kind of positive cues towards. So it's a kind of, you know, again, reciprocal effect here that if we're in a good mood, we're more likely to be kind of at our peak creative output. The other thing about that is that, um, Creativity sort of presupposes a safe environment, right? Because creativity to some degree, and certainly within the context of the larger world, is a kind of risky enterprise. Certainly you can understand that in the case of a workplace, right? Because if you have some kind of you know crazy, wild idea about how to do something, you're kind of risking something and putting it out there. It depends on the culture, of course, of your organization. But, you know, what could happen? You could be laughed at. You could be demoted or denied a promotion. You could be sort of, you know, that's the crazy guy in the corner there. There's a lot at risk. And, in fact, our kind of social norms to a great degree do kind of discourage us from being creative. So it takes a certain amount of courage. Courage requires the sense of safe space that... I have the space to do this creative act. I have the autonomy, the freedom. And that's one of the reasons, as I talk about in the book, that home is such a powerful incubator of creativity because that's where we have the greatest sense of freedom, of autonomy. This is our domain, unlike any other. The moment we step outside that door, we are subject to external forces, subject to external authorities, whether it's a boss or the law or whatever, whatever other constraining influence. Whereas in the home, we feel, oh, this is my space. I can go out there and just kind of explore things the way that I want. It makes sense when you explain it, but it's not something that I would have, you know, put together on my own, I think. So it's one of those where I'm really grateful that you've, you know, devoted so much time and effort to collecting, organizing, explaining, you know, some of these concepts that I personally, the learning nerd in me finds really interesting, but I know they're useful as well. If people, you know, think about and apply well, what does this mean? How can I create a space that will, in fact, help me to have this positive affect and a sense of safety and autonomy? You know, it's, it's kind of conceptual, but there is a real usefulness to it. 
That's what, you know, I was talking about sort of trying to figure out the narrative of this book. And one of the things that made it tough to do is that there's all these interlocking ideas when you tell the story of creativity, where I was saying, well, how do I, you know, say this here without repeating myself 13 other times down the road where it also comes into play? Because, you know, the moment you sort of touch on one theme, it tends to lead to all these others. And that was a huge challenge, but one of the ways I tried to do it in the book was to have this little section at the end you may have noticed called Related Tactics. So for each tactic, I might then point out, you know, one, two, five, whatever it was, tactics that also kind of bring in some of the explanation, some of the reasoning why, as a way to create in an analog context a book, more of a sort of worldwide web series of, you know, influences and cross references and so forth. Uh, that was a big challenge. No, I could see that. And I appreciated the way that connected together. It reminded me a bit of what I've heard Maria Popova brain picking says about literature is the original internet, <laughs> you know, and these ideas yeah, sometimes we point in writing to each other. So, well, let me ask this about these 48 tactics or strategies that you've created, what has resonated the most with people? And did it surprise you? You know, as this book has landed in the real world, people have received it. What have you gotten feedback about? Like, what do people like? What's working for them? And did that surprise you at all? You know, I've been surprised to some degree that people will feel comfortable enough to reach out and just tell me, you know, what they thought about the book. And generally when they do that, it's very positive. People have, you know, thanked me for writing the book and that it's had a significant impact on, you know, how they do things, how they think about their space, how they think about their creative work. Generally, when I give a live talk, as I did before things sort of shut down, it was just interesting that probably the most frequently asked question involved messy environments versus neat environments, right? People are always wondering, so like, is it good to be messy or is it better to be neat? And I think, you know, everybody's wondering, like, am I doing this right? Whichever way they happen to be. So that for some reason is the question I get the most. And the good news about that particular question is that, you know what, there's arguments for either approach, that there is some scientific evidence that, yeah, messy environment is actually good for creativity because, you know, think about creativity, it's a messy process, right? It's not a linear process in the way that, you know, solving, say, a quadratic equation is a very, here, you have to do step one, that leads to step two, that leads to step three, outcome, etc. You're bouncing around, some things work, some things don't work, it's like a pinball process. So the idea that your environment might sort of simulate that kind of makes a certain amount of sense. And also what we were talking about in terms of social norms, right? When you invite folks over to your home, what do you do? You run around and you make it <laughs> nice and tidy because this kind of social expectation is that you don't walk into, you know, somebody's pigsty, that it's all kind of neat. On the other hand, there are some great, you know, eminent creatives out there who've worked very nicely in a neat environment. And clearly, even in the messy environment, once it gets like past the point where you're no longer in control, and this, we're talking about, you know, autonomy and freedom and so forth, where you're no longer in control of your space, that's kind of gotten past you. You know, obviously some very serious mental and physical illness can stem from that. So we're talking up to a point there. But yes, if you're more, you know, as I do, you know, I'm an architect. So for me, you know, everything has its place, right? It's just a it's just wired into me. So when I start, you know, working, I've got to have, you know, a very neat and tidy desk with as few objects as so forth. I like to also kind of clear the decks just in terms of little tasks, you know, get those little little things out of the way at the start of the day. And that kind of frees up my thinking. I'm not anxious about, oh, I still have to do such and such at some point today and so forth. So this is one where, you know, if it works for you, stick with it, but it's good to know why the opposing approach or strategy might work as well. Yeah. 
that makes a lot of sense to me. And I found myself wondering, you know, as I read this, some of them, it was almost like a checklist, like, oh, I did that naturally. You know, I, I really love the color blue. And I know that's number two, look at something blue. But I was incidentally on that one, I was really interested how you talk about, you know, when you go into the history of creativity and you talk about divergent thinking and convergent thinking. And I thought, I personally spend a lot of time in that kind of expansive divergent space. And then when you talked about the color red as a sort of focusing agent, I found myself thinking, maybe I should paint it red or at least one wall red and change the direction I'm working and things like that. So it was interesting to look at this as almost a checklist, like, yep, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Or I could do that. You know, like the one work under a lofty ceiling. I love that. Number three. Now, not everyone has the luxury of having a vaulted ceiling or a, a tall area to work under, but you talk about some of these, I don't know that it's a workaround, but like a creative way to apply them, right? Like on that one, you talk about being able, if we can paint the space in a way that gives us the perception of working under a lofty ceiling, right? So it was interesting to me that way. What have you found personally? Because I imagine, like you said, we don't need to apply all of these to get the benefit. Even one of these can make an enormous difference for us. But were there any of these that they're kind of like your favorites or, you know, things that really stood out as you wrote them, you were excited to share these or anything like that? Well, clearly one of the kind of largest areas that unite many of these tactics involves nature. And, uh, you know, I touched on a little bit when we were talking about our formation and kind of evolutionary context, which is clearly in a natural environment. In fact, if you take all the time in the history of the world that humans have been roaming the earth 99.99 however many nines percent of that time has been spent in natural environments it's only in the last literal you know and metaphorical flick of the eye that we've kind of gone completely in the opposite direction to where we now spend upwards of 90 percent of our time indoors in built space you know that might be good for my business but it's not necessarily good for people in general because when we take ourselves out of nature it's almost like being a fish out of water we literally our health declines our happiness declines and as we talked about our creativity can decline as well so clearly how do we address that we do it by bringing nature inside as much as possible so even if you have to be indoors the idea well if you're sort of blessed as I am, I can look out my window and I see practically a forest. I mean, it's a very verdant, natural landscape outside my door. But if you don't, if you live as I did for many years in New York City, where there's very little nature evident from many, many residences, then put a plant on your desk. I mean, literally, they've done studies where just putting a plant on your desk can boost your kind of idea generation by 15 to 40%. They did this in actually in a workplace environment. So even little things like that can completely change your complexion. So for me, you know, because of my context, yes, nature has played a big role, but also think about metaphorical representations of nature. That is that we're finding that people will respond to non-literal cues that allude to things in the world almost as powerfully as they do to the actual one. So for example, you could put up a botanic print on the wall, right? Or something that represents a landscape, even a travel poster with a beautiful, you know, rendering of the French Riviera extending into the distance. People actually will respond to those quite well and have that same kind of uplift. I mean, the word you use just in kind of framing this question, perception is key, right? Because it's all about what we perceive, not necessarily what literally is. 
So in the case of, say, a ceiling, if you have maybe nine foot or nine foot six ceilings, not quite meeting that threshold of 10 feet, which is at least according to science is kind of the kind of the threshold for moving into that creative mindset. You know what? There's ways that you can trick the eye, that you can fool the eye into thinking it's all about ceiling height. You could paint vertical stripes on your wall to lead the eye just in a purely vertical fashion. You could place a tall mirror, kind of lean it against a wall to kind of bounce off the ceiling and make it feel like it's farther away. You can use color, as we talked about, blue, which is a recessive, optically speaking, a recessive color makes things appear farther away or bigger and larger. So it's all about really, at the end of the day, what you perceive or feel or think not literally what is out there in the world. Thank you for that. What you were talking about, even, you know, representations of things can have an impact on us. This is something that I think I'll probably be fascinated with until I die. Just about the things like brain priming, things that we're not aware that they're influencing us. And you quote something in the book I'd never heard before about a box, about people working by an open box and the effect that that had. Will you talk about that for a moment as a way of kind of illustrating how much we can be impacted by something that we might not consciously be aware of? Most of these tactics I talk about techniques are operating on an unconscious level, below the threshold of consciousness, where in fact is where most creativity actually is happening, right? Yes, we need a certain amount of deliberate creativity at the end of the day to physically do things and bring things to market or a book to fruition and so forth, but a lot of that idea churn is happening um, below the surface. So yes, this is a funny experiment where they had subjects uh, first group, of course, you always have to kind of you have to have at least two groups to kind of compare and contrast the effect or the result of changing a variable in their environment. So one group sat literally in a cardboard carton, an open cardboard carton, and they were given a series of creative problem-solving exercises to do, which is typically how creativity is measured in the laboratory conditions. And this kind of testing has been going on, developing really since the 1960s. So it's pretty well established. So they put these people in a cardboard carton, they're doing their thing, they go away, they amass their data, you know, the researchers take their data. Then they have a second group, which are given exactly the same problems to solve, creative problems to solve, except now they're sitting alongside the box. So what do you think they find? They find that the people who sat outside the box outperformed their peers who did exactly the same exercises in exactly otherwise the same space, but who sat inside the box. And of course, you think about that classic metaphor, thinking outside the box or thinking inside the box, that's non-creative, thinking outside the box, that's creativity. And to a great extent, that's true in the sense that a box is an enclosure, it's kind of hemming you in. And a lot of the tactics that I talk about relate to spaciousness, right? Your sense of, is the space around me open? Is it expansive? Does it extend out beyond the four walls or whatever wall I'm looking at or not? Generally speaking, the more open you sense your surrounding space to be, the more, think about how we talk, open-minded you are. Open-mindedness is one of the key characteristics of the creative personality. It's one of the what's called big five personality characteristics. The more open you are to new ways of doing things, new ideas, new approaches to life, what have you. Whereas the more closed in you feel space to be, the more constricted, the more, quote, closed-minded you are. Now, closed-mindedness in certain contexts, depending on the task that you're doing, can be a very valuable state of mind because, well, think about, you know, you're going over Excel spreadsheets. You want to be very focused. You want to be very narrow in your attention. You want to be very sequential in your thinking. This is also called 
left-brained thinking, our analytical sides, versus quote-unquote right-brained thinking, creative characteristics, creative mental processing. And here's the thing. Creativity is, in a sense, a tricky term because you can use it in two different ways. You could talk about what I call creativity proper, for lack of better words. That's where we're talking about idea generation, idea flow, coming up with those new thoughts, new concepts that have never before seen. But you know what? If it's not useful, let's go back to that original definition. If nobody can, you know, understand, I'm making up gibberish words. Great, that's all very new and original and unique, but they're useless because nobody understands what I'm talking about. So actually, creativity as a whole, looking at that term holistically, is actually the interplay of what we call ideation, idea generation, creativity proper, and analytical thinking. In fact, that whole divergent-convergent model you were talking about earlier sees creativity as moving from a divergent phase first, brainstorming, right? Let's just get all the ideas we can possibly think about out onto the table, into the world. Let's talk about them. Let's mash them around. But at a certain point, you just can't keep, you know, spewing more and more ideas. you got to say, okay, look, we've got, you know, a client meeting in three weeks to show my architectural design or my marketing plan or whatever. We need to start converging, narrowing our focus, narrowing our thoughts, narrowing the possibilities to where we can say, aha, this scheme, this idea, this marketing campaign, this book, whatever, this paragraph for that matter, this kind of works, let's go with it. So we want to talk about both styles, but clearly I think where we as a culture, as a, as a world, need more help with is on the ideation side because think about growing up, you know, children are super creative, right? We all know that kindergartners, first graders, second graders, but as you start to kind of move to the educational system, then go out into the working world, there's a lot of uh, discouragement of creativity. If you want to get that promotion, get that job, it's like, don't go out on a limb. Don't, don't risk yourself by looking a little off kilter there. So stay within the boundaries. So stay within that box, as opposed to sitting without the box. Last word, that's the power of metaphor right there. That metaphor of thinking inside the box, outside of the box, literally being embodied and changing the way we're thinking, not through any other constraint beyond, oh, I'm sitting inside a cardboard garden or I'm sitting outside a cardboard garden. Yeah. Thank you for breaking that down too. When I hear, you know, studies like that, first of all, I think who funds these things, <laughs> you know, like, and how is that grant proposal, you know, written, we're going to put people in a large cardboard carton and then, you know, but I'm glad people do. And so let me just ask this before we transition, what, if anything, haven't we talked about either related to this book or creativity or anything else that you want to talk about, or you think might benefit the listener before we transition to the enlightening lightning round? Oh, well, perhaps just that, you know, in the book, I break down the tactics into three kind of main groups. So the first one are what I call appearances and appurtenances, kind of a fancy way of saying these are things, these are tactics that relate to things that you see in a space, whether it's, you know, the fixed construction, walls, floors, ceilings, or furnishings, things that move, decorative objects, artwork, and so forth. The second one are what I call the ambience tactics. So these are things that are a little more diffuse, a little less tangible, can't quite get your hands on. So I'm talking about sound or lighting levels, but still clearly characteristics of the physical space. But the third one I call the action tactics because these are actually things that the scientists have found that people do 
that will enhance creative thinking. And so the idea is, of course, if you know what those activities are, you can uh, create the spaces in which to encourage people and accommodate people in doing them. And that's a whole, you know, subject area in itself we haven't talked about, but it covers everything from sleeping and napping to cooking and exercising. Clearly a big one that people talk about a lot is just taking a break. Right, The incubation period is particularly important in the creative process, and certainly a classic application of that is if you find yourself in a kind of creative block, or you're procrastinating and you just kind of can't get past something, you know what? Do something else, and in some ways, do something else that has as little to do with creative problem solving as possible, like maybe, I don't know, doing the laundry, about as menial a chore as you can possibly imagine, a kind of non-creative chore as you can imagine. And yet the funny thing about the creative process is that because it occurs in back of mind, below the threshold of consciousness, you're actually giving your brain kind of space to churn away in the back of mind, let things kind of gestate, let things come together, make connections until, you know, in the middle of doing the laundry or more classically, of course, is showering, that solution to that creative problem that you've been grappling with suddenly pops into consciousness because you've given your conscious mind very little to do of any kind of meaningful focus sense. All your bandwidth kind of goes over into the unconscious end of the spectrum. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. And I love how the last two were about traveling about getting away from, you know, as much as we talk about creating a creative space, you know, in which to really let our ideas flourish and come to fruition, that sometimes, as you're saying, whether it's taking a break or kind of switching gears and doing something that isn't quite so creative and getting quite away, yeah, that's that's something that I've found has been a real blessing in my life. So, okay, thank you for that. Well, let's go ahead and transition to the enlightening lightning round. So again, this is a series of questions on a variety of topics. The basic design is that I will ask the question and for the most part, I'll stand aside. So you're welcome to answer as long as you want, but my aim is to be brief. Got it. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Life is like driving from New York to LA without a roadmap or digital device to show you the route. Okay, thank you. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? I think that we're willing to sacrifice human life to maintain our standard of living. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it, or a phrase, or a saying, or a quote, or a quip, what would the shirt say? Is it the exact same t-shirt, or do I get to change it every day so at least it's washed? <laughs> you can have at least seven of the same okay, t-shirt. all right. Then I would say, uh, how about, this is not a t-shirt. Awesome. I'm just being tugged on that response to question number two. Do you mind if we go back and I just ask you a little bit about that? <laughs> if you will. Will you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Well, I just think of things like driving a car on an interstate highway. You know, I mean, sad statistical fact is that to some degree, you know, a certain number of people will suffer fatalities or injury or things of a very, you know, bad sort. But can we ever imagine getting rid of cars? So in a 
you know, the, the economic devastation that completely change our way of life would be, you know, just enormous. And I don't think we're willing to do that. So in a strange way, we kind of accept this risk in order to maintain our standard of living. Yeah, I think that is really insightful. And I've thought about that sometime. When I think about these auto manufacturers that, I mean, bless them, that their safety records are remarkable and how durable cars are. But at the same time, I can't... I have a hard time imagining creating a product that I knew people would die in. Like, it's just going to happen. Exactly. And then, you know, the same can be said of airplanes and subway cars living in certain urban environments or any environment, really, where there are other people and people lose their temper and do bad things to other people. So it's a curious, you know, conundrum, but I hate to say it, but it's sort of the cost of doing business. It's the cost of living, to use a couple of common phrases there. And it just, yeah, it just makes you think, you know, how absolute can we be in our in our standards and our I hope, you know, desire to preserve human life. We, we're willing to do, we're making some trade-offs, but we don't think about it very hard because I think it makes us uncomfortable to think about that. I think you're right. Okay, thank you. Question number four. I love that. This is not a t-shirt, by the way. Reminds me of, my daughter has a book, This Is Not a Box. And then, of course, Magritte's Se Ne Un Pipe. Peep. Peep, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, question number four. What book, other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? A book I'm just totally enamored of, I guess is the word, or just you know beholden to, and in some ways with something of an inspiration for my own is called Story. It's just a one-word title. I forget the subtitle, but it's basically, at least it presents itself as a manual for screenwriting. You know, so for, if you're interested in writing screenplays, movies and so forth, presumably, you know, oh, that looks, you know, that looks good. That looks interesting. It's by a fellow named Robert McKee, M-C-K-E-E. And what's remarkable about this book is that it's an unusual example of, of a book transcending its own genre. And, you know, we talked about genre of my creative space. This purports to be a manual, sort of a how-to book, but it ends up just being an amazing exegesis of this discussion of life itself because you know movies are about stories and stories are about being human and this writer mckee or this fellow mckee goes way beyond just the okay here's the mechanics you know the anti-climax this and three acts and all of that main characters and so forth to just get deep into the human psyche and the human story. And it's just amazing how it operates at both levels and something that I can only aspire to. So, you know, you don't have to be into screenwriting. I have no interest in, I don't even know why I picked it up. Someone must have recommended it to me, but forget that, just read the book. It's really terrific. Right on, thank you. Okay, question number five. So you've traveled a lot. What is one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I would say a couple of things. One, I like to, at least, you know, this is for long distance traveling where you might be going across uh, time zones, significant number of time zones. I like to try to schedule a buffer day at the end of the, you know, trip, travel period where you're not going to work, you're not doing work because you just need that time, at least I find, to kind of get back onto your circadian rhythms, into your biological clock. You should go outdoors to the extent that it's possible because natural light does a lot to reset our mental workings, in particular our kind of chronology. In terms of things, I like to bring along something my family got me for a birthday present, a little speaker 
It's like a cylinder. It's maybe five inches tall, three inches across. So very, you can literally hold it in your hand. It's a Bluetooth speaker, so it can you know connect to your smartphone, connect to your laptop, and I use it to play music all the time because I'm very into playing music. So if you're sitting in the hotel room and you know getting up in the morning doing your thing, or at night, or you're out on a balcony, or you can even take it with you if you have your smartphone around, I can play music and get decent sound as opposed to what comes out of my laptop and smartphone straight off and you don't need earphones. And it's not just for you. So if you're traveling with others, they can hear the music as well. That's awesome. All right, thank you for that. Question number six. What have you started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I've kind of gone back to real basics, which is water. A couple of things I've started doing. One is to start every day with a glass of water. I've been reading a book, I think, called Brain Food. I believe the author's name is Lisa Morconi, something to that effect. I mean, she talks about the importance of clearly water to our being. And we've all heard, you know, the body is mostly water, except that it's not simply that case, our brain is actually more watery than the rest of our body is watery as that is. Point being, she talks about a good, healthy water, consistent water diet, staving off Alzheimer's, dementia. They've found seems to be a connection between how much water we consume and whether our brains, I don't call it, dry up to some extent, detach from the cranium and all these kind of bad things that seem to be associated with late life decline. But also someone else had suggested, I call sort of a first in principle, like whatever you put in your mouth first in the day is going to kind of set the tone for your metabolism, for your body throughout the rest of the day. So think about the fact that we, you know, we just slept six, seven, eight, nine, whatever hours. We haven't taken a drink of water all night. We may even be dehydrated from air conditioning or dehumidification. So I start every morning with a glass of water and try to do the same throughout the day. Smart. That's smart. All right. What, number seven, what do you wish every American knew? I would say what democracy means. And I'll leave it at that. Okay. Thank you. Number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? I would probably sort of reframe something JFK famously said by saying, ask not what this person can do for you, but what you can do for this person, which I guess can be sort of summarized by the word empathy. Yeah. Thank you. And number nine. So this next question is about money. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you always do with it or you never do with it? Well, never do it is to never fetishize it because I've just seen too many examples, you know, both personal and public, where people do bad things uh, to people when we make money or kind of fetish object. As far as positive suggestions, I think a business consultant years ago, our firm was working with them, simply said, look, look at money as a byproduct of your business, not the object. If you deliver a good product, if you deliver a good service, the money will come as opposed to, okay, I need to make money. What do I do? And I think that's just kind of stayed with me ever since. It's a beautiful perspective. Yes. Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting to me that we do have a choice, right? That I think each of us probably comes to money or money hopefully comes to us and we're oriented toward it one way or the other about it's a byproduct or it's, you know, the focus but we can choose to have our orientation be either. Absolutely. So, okay, beautiful. All right, final question here in the Enlightening Lightning Round. If people want to learn more from you, or if they wanted to connect with you, what would you suggest they do? 
So probably the best place to go to, for starters, would be my website, donaldratner.com, and that's Ratner with two T's, very, very critical there. There's a one T branch of the family, but we're in the two T branch. Because, you know, there you'll obviously, it's my online biography, I guess, but lots of resources that I put on there to help others. Lots of books on creativity, not just my own, if you're interested in reading further up on it. Other podcasts, even academic programs in creativity studies. I do put on a number of my you know, published writings that I publish elsewhere in a blog. So, oh, and even some courses there. So, you know, that's a place to start. I'm also on LinkedIn, of course, and Facebook. But probably if you want to reach out to me, go to the website because there's a talk contact form there and people do fill it out. And we have made some wonderful connections that way. I'll just say this here at the end of the lightning lightning round to make sure that I include it as a way of saying thank you for making the time to share your insight and your experience with me and everyone listening. I have gone on Kiva.org and I've made a $100 microloan to an entrepreneur named Marie in Albania. And she'll use this money to build a greenhouse so she'll be able to sell vegetables during more of the year and provide a better income and quality of life for her family. So thank you for giving me a reason to, to go make that microloan. That's a wonderful gesture, and I love how you somehow managed to get both, you know, kind of building architecture, greenhouse, and nature kind of to work <laughs> together. It really, you know, resonates for me, certainly. So that's that's wonderful. Okay, so the final part of our interview here, coming down the stretch, I just have a few questions for you related to creativity, the creative process, and writing. For some reason, I want to start with each of us seems to have a different relationship with our reader while we're writing right? And who we're writing for. So I know I asked you a while ago about who you wrote this book for, but now I want to ask when you were in the act of writing in front of your computer, did you have a specific individual? Did you have a composite reader? Were you writing for yourself? Like how connected were you to the reader while you were in the act of drafting? I am totally connected with the reader because I, I don't know any other way to do it. And certainly talking to yourself seems the least likely to yield a successful book. And in a sense, that just kind of reminds me, you know, this wasn't a straight shot trajectory to success here in terms of bringing a book into the world. I went through one iteration where I had a completely different approach to the material in terms of structure and narrative. And I was able to get a literary agent and we shopped it around. The thing got shot down by every single publishing house. So I kind of said, uh-oh, and this is where I kind of retreated in the sense of I went off and did other things until, I, you know, back of mind as well as conscious mind started to think about, okay, how can I repair this? Because I feel certain that this is valuable material for folks to learn about. And I eventually kind of conceived the structure that I had. I think what distinguished the first round is that I was writing more for myself. I had sort of adopted this writing style from a fellow named Frank Rich, which folks may know, was a very long-time theater critic for the New York Times, as I think currently working, writes for New York Magazine. But he had this wonderful writing style in his essays when he started doing just general sort of opinion pieces, where I call it the ping-pong style, where he could somehow, you know, write a sentence, and that would lead, you know, to another sentence, but not in a simple linear trajectory, more like a pinball, and that it veers off without feeling disconnected. And he could kind of pull this off somehow where he would cover hundreds of different little sort of topic areas within one coherent essay. And that's where I think I failed because I thought, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to write it that way. And it's clearly flopped. And it was only when I start to think about, all right, you know, who am I writing for? 
that things got back on track. What I generally do is to visualize myself, not quite doing a reading, but almost the equivalent of standing on a stage, as I have done, in front of a live audience, like they call it live studio audience, but let's say I'm in a library or a conference and I'm giving a talk. I'm the speaker and I've got my big PowerPoint. I use Keynote, the Mac version of PowerPoint behind me, because all my talks come with a lot of visual material, as you could probably glean from the book and just from what I'm talking about. And I'm talking to people. It's a monologue, right? They're not talking back. So that's kind of like what writing is. It's sort of a monologue. And my language is, you know, I tend to speak in full sentences, however much this interview might suggest otherwise, but I tend to speak in full sentences. I like to think I'm coherent and I'm relating to them, you know, very directly. Now, remember, this is an audience that is coming and unless I'm giving, you know, in front of architects and designers type event, it's a diverse audience. If I'm talking in a library, these people could be any of those groups I talked about early on. So I've got to be able to relate to each and every one of them, make this meaningful, make them open their eyes just a little bit, literally and figuratively, by showing them things about us, about creativity that they hadn't been aware of. Because so much of this is unconscious, we are always fascinated to find what you know makes the human mind tick. It's like looking under the hood of a car and seeing all these things going on you had no idea were happening, and it reveals something about us. So I have to, I've got to find a level of, call it erudition, I guess, that appeals to all of these folks and doesn't leave anybody behind, isn't too dumbed down, isn't too, you know, esoteric and abstract. And that's how kind of I framed this book as almost like a written dialogue, I should say, or monologue, I suppose, in front of a diverse live audience. Right on. Thanks for sharing that. I know, you know, at some level, a book is just words that make sentences, that make paragraphs, that fill pages. But in other ways, the act of writing a book can be daunting and overwhelming. And the fact that each of us does have a process that either aids us or impedes us. And sometimes knowing what's worked for someone else at this kind of level, like how did I think of my reader? How did I you know, envision this can be useful. Let me ask you, let me go to the question of structure. So clearly you were very, very thoughtful and you've explained a bit about the three different parts and how the tactics fit into those and, and why that worked. And I'm really fascinated. You've touched on this a little bit about how creativity, and I love the definition of novel and useful, that it is both this kind of intuitive process, but also a logical process. But when it came to the shaping of the book, the structure of the book, what was it in the first kind of version that didn't work? And then when you structured it, will you talk about how you structured it and why that ended up working? Sure. I think, you know, first of all, it's a fluid iterative process. So it's not like, you know, you can sit down one day and have your table of contents all fleshed out or your outline, your structure. Clearly, you know, it's that messy process we talked about where it might take three steps this way and then two steps back and so on and so forth. You know, I think to a large degree, I was able to find a structure that worked for the final version, the, the published version by letting the material sort of tell me what it needed to be and to look for patterns. So I've got, you know, 50, 40, whatever it was, and even that number changed over time. Some tactics kind of came in, some some came out when I thought they weren't, you know, really making sense. But when I look at the material, you start to see these patterns. Oh, look, all of these primes, that's what we call the sort of input, the triggering element in our environment that yields this outcome, this change of cognitive style, this improved creativity. They all stem from, quote, things we see. And these here, they don't, they don't do that. So where should I put them? Oh, I see. They're more of an ambient typology and so forth. And then the action tactics, things start to fall in place if you look for connections. 
you know, that word connections comes into play a lot in creativity, which is finding the connections between things. I think Steve Jobs is famously quoted as saying, creativity is just connecting things, you know, very easy for him, of course, but for the rest of us, we really have to think about that. What are the things that hold together that make things fall into a certain group or typology that makes a greater sense out of these disparate parts? And that for me was a very fluid process. I use Evernote a lot. So it's almost like I'm word sketching ideas and changing around structure and mushing things apart or mashing things together, mushing them apart until I reach, you know, that kind of aha click that structure makes sense. The first one, you know, I should have known, I suppose, that my narrative structure wasn't making sense, the version that, you know, got turned down because I couldn't figure out a coherent pattern in the narrative. I'd be talking about lighting in one place, and then I'm talking about it all of a sudden again in another place, and there's no connection between them. So, you know, I should have seen that, but I didn't, that there wasn't this, you know, homogeny in a sense of material that created something greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. Let's talk for a moment about, you touched on this too, about the use of visuals. The visuals were part of what made this so much fun for me to read. And in all the authors that I've interviewed, I mean, of course, many have had some photos, but they weren't so essential to the work as I think your book has been. And in fact, I found myself wanting to share a lot of them with my wife. <laughs> like I would tell her things, but then I would say, no, 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 check that how cool this is, you know, and whether it was the temples in Kyoto talking about travel, or there was one that was kind of like a little barrel house. Let me ask you about the photos, because it's one thing to collect ideas in the form of words or studies and start to organize them into some kind of a structure. But when it came to images and these photos, how did you approach that? I mean, how long had you been collecting them for? How did you tag them or file them or organize them? Like, how did all of that come together? The visual aspect of the book. Right. So, you know, in some ways, the images consumed more energy than writing the book for any number of reasons. First of all, finding them in the first place. So clearly that takes a lot of scouring and thank goodness for the internet. It is a boon in that sense. And of course, from other books that I have as well, there really was a lot of search, search, search to find images that A, would illustrate the point I'm trying to illustrate and B, be of a high quality both in terms of its content, but also in the photography itself. So, you know, you just, that's a lot of hurdles to clear right there. So it ended up, you know, taking me an enormous amount of time to collect this material. Obviously, I'm glad I did. There's also the second tier challenge was getting them out of the hands of the people who had ownership rights to them, mostly architects and designers to a significant degree. Sometimes the photographer has the rights, but I would have to reach out and say, hey, I love this image here or these images. Would you be willing to make them available to me for this book and so forth? And, you know, at the end of the day, I think I had maybe 40%, 35% success rate, meaning, you know, for every three I would look for, maybe one would actually end up in my possession for use in the book. That meant, you know, that much more work, that much more outreach. But they are key. They are critical. I couldn't imagine writing the book without them. Obviously, we're, you know, we're talking about, to a large degree, visual material. We are talking about the built and natural environment. We have to show people pictures of them because to go from words to pictures is not an easy leap. And people could conceive of 50 different things when I write a sentence about a blue room or a green room that might not be as apparent as one picture. Of course, we all know the classic. A picture is worth a thousand words, and it's really true to a great degree. In terms of the mechanics of keeping track of this, I used a wonderful web-based application that I would recommend to folks for all sorts of purposes called Airtable. 
A-I-R-T-A-B-L-E, one word, dot com. It is basically a web-based database program. I used to use FileMaker. If anybody knows that, that's a Mac database program. Very unwieldy, very expensive, very hard to update. This thing is a dream. It's very easy to use. And as I say, you can use it for all sorts of things, but I use it for an image library. So if you create a record, First of all, in goes the image, then I can identify every, I create all the data fields, every single piece of information about that image you could possibly ask for. Who's the architect? Who's the designer? Who's the photographer? Who's the point of contact? Do I have rights access? Is it in my hand or is it on its way? And on and on you go. Everything about that image you need to know, and that enables you, of course, to sort or categorize, access them when you need to, keep track of them. Otherwise, I would not possibly been able to do all this. I've tried other apps. Nothing works quite as well as this is. And as I said, for single user, it is free. So I certainly recommend it for folks. And you can, you know, you can keep your recipes on it. You can keep your library on it. You can keep anything that can be entered into a database. But in my case, it was absolutely invaluable. Wow. Yeah. I haven't used a table personally, but my wife has. And I love hearing about how you used it to help you get this book done. The application I've seen it used for is my wife would, she's very organized and very prepared kind of person. And she would buy and wrap Christmas gifts far enough in advance that by the time the holiday came, she'd forget. So she used Airtable to log the photograph of the gift and who it went to, you know, what it was wow. before it was wrapped. And I was like, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think she might be out organizing me. And I thought I was pretty <laughs> compulsive on that score. Yeah. I think you guys get along pretty well. I love this too, about how you found a tool that really helped you get this done. And in my own creative projects, I have experienced how powerful or what a difference maker it can be when we finally get a structure for you know something we're working on and we finally get tools that work especially if we enjoy using them and i know so many of these are personal choices from the feel of a pen to a certain app you know this kind of thing but that's cool to hear that airtable was a part of that for you let me ask you this about the act of working to get it done whether it was the research on the photos or the drafting of the words because it's one thing to have an intention or a desire to write a book and it's another thing to do it I love someone to have run a marathon, but not very many people want to run a marathon. <laughs> when it came to your getting the book done, how did you organize your time and your life to actually do it? Well, I'm very fortunate in that I'm kind of in control of my work life for quite a few years. Uh, I became a partner in a firm early on and then started my own firm, breaking off from the first one. And I've pretty much been able to structure my day the way, you know, I wish to. So I'm in a very good spot in terms of that aspect of things. So, you know, you give yourself some kind of routinization or you develop a kind of routine, clearly. I think that's like the number one piece of advice folks give for undertaking projects. And that makes a lot of sense, especially in terms of creativity, because when you find a routine of time, your brain literally can click into a creative mindset just because it's gotten into that pattern. It's kind of etched into our neural pathways. And associated with that is space, right? So if you go to the same place at the same time every day or nearly every day, your brain literally will shift into that cognitive mindset almost purely by association. We know this from the famous Pavlov dog experiment, right? 
He kept ringing the bell every time he fed the dog to the point where all he had to do was ring the bell and they'd start salivating even though there was no food in front of them. So we're just like Pavlov's dogs to some degree. And there is even a piece of the brain, the hippocampus, where space and time seem to kind of come together in terms of what that particular part of the brain's function is. I particularly love a quote from uh, W. Somerset Maugham, famous writer, who said, quote, I write whenever inspiration strikes. Fortunately, it strikes every day at 9 a.m. sharp. So there you kind of see, you know, we talk about inspiration, these ideas and showers. And of course, those are very important, these little brain bursts throughout the course of the day. And you want to write them down. You absolutely want to record them in some fashion, because otherwise we will forget them nine times out of ten within less than a minute. But that's not a book, right? Little little bursts, little ideas do not a book make. We need to weave them together into a tapestry. And that's where the hard work part comes down, the routinization, the sitting down in the same space every day at 9 o'clock, that kind of analytic and creative interplay. Again, it's all kind of saying the same thing. That has to be part of one's kind of daily routine as well. And that's what I certainly try to practice. I generally work in 90-minute blocks, which is about the long as most experts will say to go with continuous work. Some methods go as short as 25 minutes. The Pomodoro method you may have come across where they'll say do 25 minutes and five minute break and you do that four times and you have lunch. There's a system to it. The bottom line is what we were talking about earlier is give the brain a rest, step away from the problem, do something else, have a snack, exercise, whatever it is, you'll actually come back stronger in terms of certainly creative output. And again, they've done studies on this where they had people working on a creative problem straight through. And then they had another group doing exactly the same problem, but they gave them breaks. Who outperformed the other? I think we know it's the one who took the breaks. So I use 90 minutes generally as a kind of pacing basis for my day. And, you know, another interesting, just as it's coming to mind, methodology I would put out there for folks, we tend to think in terms of 24-hour cycles, which kind of makes sense because the rising and falling of the sun and the rising, again, that's a natural unit of time. But also think about the week. David Cadavy, K-A-D-A-V-Y, a friend and colleague, has talked about, you know, you may not just do the same thing every single day because, you know what, by Friday, we're all kind of a little bit fried out or whatever. Think about maybe you do your most creative work or most demanding work the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then you start kind of shifting into somewhat more administrative or kind of easier, lower energy demanding work towards the end of the week. And that's kind of an interesting methodology there because it takes into account that it's not a simple repetitive unit each day and that there's different ways to look at it. That makes a lot of sense. And I really do think that that is next level thinking, because as you're saying, many people, if they think about, you know, getting disciplined, as we might say, or just getting organized, committed about creating a routine that we might just go first to the day, you know, when am I going to fit it in my schedule? Because there is a part that's very practical, but then the next level is going, well, what are my energy levels? What are my preferences? You know, what are my other commitments that I can intelligently organize around? And maybe looking at it as David suggests and also really smart. So that makes sense. Absolutely. Let me ask you about the role of other people. You mentioned an agent already, right? And we often tend to think of writing as a very solitary effort, but anyone who has successfully published a book knows it's actually a very collaborative effort, although there is definitely the solo aspect. It's kind of a lonely journey in many ways. But will you tell me about what was the role of other people in this book from 
early stages of thought partners, maybe high level conceptual editors, agent, publisher, anything that comes to mind, people in the kind of emotional space of the book? So early on, certainly, as, as one might expect, you know, family members are a great sounding board <laughs> through which to bounce off your ideas, you know, thinking about this book and what do you think and so on and so forth. They're very supportive, which can be good and less good in the sense that, you know, sometimes it's better to hold your feet to the fire than find out later you kind of went down the wrong track. But on the other hand, you know, confidence building and support obviously are very critical. So I can certainly, you know, count that for myself as a positive, you know, go for it. Let's do it. That sounds very interesting. Then, of course, there are your colleagues, people in the field that are important to see what are they doing, what are they working on, what have they published. Obviously, I've read everything I could possibly read on the subject or even remotely related to the subject in terms of other books. Agents, yes, very important, obviously, because, you know, they're going to run interference between your proposal and the publisher or the potential publishers. And the proposal is really where, you know, the rubber meets the road here. If you can't get your ideas down in a very convincing manner, make your case, basically, and it doesn't cover just the material in the book, but how are you going to market it? Who's your audience? A lot of the questions you asked yourself. That's really the test, and they're good, obviously, in helping you shape that, assuming that you know they see the promise in it in the first place. It really is a collaborative process more than people imagine when they're writing. There's, of course, the copy editing that happens once your manuscript is turned in. There's your particular contact or editor at the publisher itself who's going to kind of go with you through the whole process. It's really interesting. It's not a solitary pursuit as it might seem from the outside, but that's all good because, look, you have to get other perspectives clearly on your work. It's very hard to be totally self-judging, to detach yourself enough to see when something might not be working as well as working. So it's been all positive. I see that absolutely as a good thing rather than as, you know, someone interfering with how I think the book must be. Awesome. Thanks for breaking that out. Well, I want to ask a couple questions about marketing and promotion, which I realize every writer has, you know, their own aspirations for a book. But I also realize many people think just getting a book completed, getting a manuscript drafted or getting it published is a finish line. And then I know many people get there and they think, oh, well, if nobody knows about this book or they don't care about it, that's not very satisfying just to have a 50,000, 70,000 word manuscript, right? Even if it is available on Amazon. So my question for you on this is what have you learned about letting people know that a book exists that has served you or surprised you? Well, I'm sort of fortunate. I mentioned my wife a short moment ago. My wife had a long career in public relations, marketing. So I became very familiar with that whole side of things, in particular, kind of how the press works, now the media, I guess we could call it. And, you know, applying some of those lessons, knowing how to reach out, knowing how to craft a story or a pitch that, you know, such and such an individual or channel might be interested in picking up has proven very invaluable. So I've been able to talk with lots of interesting folks. There's been a number of articles written these days, of course, thanks to the Internet. You can do things like guest posting and blog posting on other sites, which goes hand in hand with writing, of course. So that's, I think, for me, kind of opened up a world that maybe a lot of folks don't realize how it works and what the mechanics are. And I think nowadays, of course, you can educate yourself in that more. One thing I might offer that is, you know, less talked about out there, as you should research this question of marketing, is teaching, and in particular, online teaching. So if you're writing a nonfiction book, almost by definition, it should be able to be teachable. It should be able to be put in some kind of teaching format. 
And nowadays, thanks to online teaching, you could put it in a format where it's just out there running on its own, more or less, meaning it's pre-recorded. It's a series of lessons or modules, and it's you obviously speaking. In my case, I'm able to bring in a lot of visual material. So it's not just me, you know, standing in front of a desk for two hours or however many hours it is. People can see the material, they can get references as I'm speaking. That is a great tool for getting the word out about the book. It's evergreen, it's perpetual, it can go forever. It could even create a passive income stream. It does take a certain amount of effort up front, especially if you're producing it yourself as I've done in some cases, then you want to put it on a platform like a Skillshare, where I have a couple of courses. I have another type format is where they have you come into a studio and put together a presentation there. I've done that with a company called MentorBox, which takes books and kind of turns them into video teaching. My particular field, architecture and design, I'm fortunate in that we are required as professionals to maintain our licensing to do a certain amount of continuing education units every year. So I kind of have a built-in audience there. So I'm working with another company, Design Arts Seminar out of Miami, to create content for my fellow professionals to access. And this, again, creates some revenues, but also gives you a great platform for putting the book out. If you're not necessarily yourself a videographer, you can certainly bring in people at reasonable costs to help you put this material together. But I really recommend it as a path that not many people take, but which could be very fruitful for getting the word out about your book. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think when done well, it really is a win-win, right? Because your audience, you're able to reach people, different learning styles, broader reach. It's another something that will outlive us, you know, hopefully. It's a chance for us to serve, potentially a chance to earn income. So there's a lot of, a exactly. lot of wins in that. That's exactly. great. What final advice or encouragement would you leave people listening with, especially people who are either they've been standing on the threshold of really embarking on a creative project of their own, like a writing project, or they're in it already? What advice or encouragement would you leave listeners with to help them get their project done and out into the world in a way that will make a difference for others? You know, I would just make the simple observation that completing that project will give you an enormous amount of self-satisfaction, the feeling of self-fulfillment, and that that feeling will only carry forward as you get it into the hands of your audience, of other people. It has got to be your goal, ultimately, you know, to serve others, to help others, to make the world a little better place. But the rewards are you know really immeasurable in a lot of ways and you know what hopefully it makes you want to do the second book or the third book after that as well so i would encourage everybody to pursue that dream yes there's going to be some ups and downs there's going to be some failures and so forth you know what if you hit a block or you suddenly get that imposter syndrome feeling that some people talk about walk away from the project for a while do something else the incubation period can be enormously fruitful and, and kind of enlightening you. Okay, what went wrong here? What are my fears? What are my concerns? And it enables you to address them, but just take your mind off of it as opposed to beating yourself every day. I got to sit down at the desk. It's not coming out. It's not coming out. A very powerful tool that will serve you well in the long run. Awesome. Well, thank you. Well, Donald, thank you again for sharing so generously of your time and your wisdom and your experience. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I love your book. I love what you're doing. Your website is beautiful, by the way. And I'm really grateful that we had the chance to connect. And I look forward to when our paths cross again in the future, whenever that is. 
Myself as well, William. Thank you for having me. Enjoy this immensely. Yeah. Okay. Well, take care. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.